0: And welcome back to all our listeners, and welcome back, Rabbi Hirsch. Thank you. As Tisha Bav draws closer, we are going to be ending the three-part series of Holocaust Dilemmas. This is the third of three, and this you've titled The Fugitive, which took place in 1944. Rabbi Hirsch.
1: So, Menachem Mendel Ostrovetsky jumped from a cattle truck, taking him to Treblinka, But that was only the beginning of his struggle to survive in a hostile world. However, his story isn't simply one of survival. It's a series of almost inexplicable events of dilemmas and situations that arose, both for him and for those around him. It's a story of determination and one which I feel highlights decisions taken by individuals during the Holocaust. He was brought up in a strongly Hasidic household in the town of Shidlovitz, in central southern Poland, and his parents were very attached to the rebbe's of Ostrovca, the last of whose dynasty was murdered by the Nazis in December of 1942. Menachem was a teenager when the war broke out, and was eventually incarcerated in the ghetto of his hometown. On January 13th, 1943, the Ukrainian guards and the SS forced all the Jews from their homes and onto cattle trucks. Menachem had contracted typhus and was running a high fever. He was almost delirious when they put him on the train, and he writes of the event the doors of the train were bolted and the crowding was unbearable everyone stood in trepidation the fear of death pronounced on their faces and then my father called for us all to pray the afternoon prayers together it was an unforgettable experience whenever i recall that mincha service in the cattle car on the way to treblinka i find myself trembling violently Sixty-five years have passed since, and I recall such uplifting moments from those transcending their physical state as they stood praying to God. I wish I could convey even one iota of the intense emotions that overwhelm me as I recall that Mincha. So the train continues towards Treblinka with menachem actually lying on the floor and his father is talking very urgently about escape there were those in the cattle car who disagree insisting that the nazis have a precise count of those that have entered the train and they would realize who was missing but menachem's father insisted that the young ones have to save themselves and jump from the train because their fate was sealed as it was And he tells his two sons, you have to escape while it's still possible. To which Menachem replies, I can't, I'm far too weak. But his father says, listen, you can, we're talking life and death. You both have to jump. And if divine providence smiles your way, you'll meet. I guarantee that one of you will stay alive. And their father advises them how to remove the barbed wire from the opening in the train car and how and when to jump and then he takes his leave from them saying i divide you into two camps just like our father jacob divided his family when esav approached should the enemy attack one camp the other could be saved in recalling these moments menachem would say i do not understand from which wellspring of faith my father drew the strength to speak and act as he did, bidding us farewell on the death train, with my mother standing against the wall in her grief and deep turmoil. Only thanks to my father's prodding did I manage to take that dangerous step. It wasn't merely the fright of the jump itself, but the hair-raising terror of what might follow. Where would I go? My brother jumped first. Eyes squeezed shut and with a last prayer I, too, leapt outside and awaited the shot that I was certain would follow. My head hit the metal train track, but fortunately, my heavy winter hat cushioned some of my fall. I was still disorientated and called out the name of my brother a few times, but with no response. I would never see my dear brother, Hanina Aron, again
0: where could he go now? He's in the open in the middle of a hostile country what's the
1: So he tries knocking on the door of various farmers' huts at the side of the road but he gets nowhere so eventually there's a heavy snow falling and he digs himself into the snow itself and spends the night in the open. The next day he carries on trying to find uh, at least temporary safety and eventually somebody opens the door Now, he's got false identity papers certifying him as a Christian, which he shows this Polish farmer, who finally allows him into the house. But as soon as Menachem enters, the farmer says to him that he's going to kill him for masquerading as a Christian. There is a daughter of the farmer, who's about 15 in that room, who begs her father to let him go, and she opens the window so he could escape, And Menachem flees from the house, tearing up his false documents and throwing them away. But this Pole, in his hatred, gets hold of two of his helpers, and they start chasing Menachem down. They catch him, and they beat him until there's blood streaming down his face, at which point they bring him to the police. And a gendarme gives them two kilo of sugar, two bottles of vodka, and two loaves of bread which was the standard reward for turning in a Jew. And the policeman then tells his prisoner that the police have got the forged documents because obviously his pursuers had actually bothered to locate and stick the fragments of paper together. And the policeman says, you deserve the death penalty twice over, once for having forged papers and once for jumping from a train without permission. And incredibly, he asks Menachem to sign a piece of paper on which his crimes are recorded, including the death sentence. Now, instead of signing it, he takes the paper and rips it up and starts screaming, I'm Manek Ostrovetsky of Shudlovtsa. I'm a technician by trade. And hearing that there's a factory here where I might find work, I came. And the policeman looks stunned. Manek Ostrowiecki? Because by pure divine providence, the policeman actually knew his prisoner. As Menachem put it, I saw God with my own eyes. My uncle ran a menswear shop. And next door, there was a shop owned by a non-Jew who, it turns out, was this policeman's father-in-law. He knew my sister, who had studied at a Polish school and walked by the store daily, and since I was blonde and looked like her, he recognised me. But that doesn't mean he was ready to let me go. With a greedy glint in his eyes, he said to me, How much money do you have? Your family are a partner in Padkaviak, which was a national factory in Poland. Give me 10,000 zlotys, and I'll release you. I'm not a partner, Menachem replied, but I'm certain that in honor of his lasting relationship with my father, Tchaikovsky the owner, would surely desire to save me. I can give you a letter instructing him to give you the money and hopefully he will answer. Because Menachem knew that his father had held a meeting with him in the ghetto in December at which all the children had been present, and his father had handed over all his money to him for safekeeping. So the policeman puts Menachem in a cell while he goes to collect his blood money, and he returns on Shabbos morning and takes him to the nearest camp, Pionki.
0: So he escaped the train and jumped, and only to end up in a, in a camp?
1: Yes, but this is a labor camp where the chances of survival are much higher. Uh, after all, they, they need their slave labor for production.
0: Have we heard of this camp? It doesn't it, ring a bell.
1: There are hundreds and hundreds of slave labor camps all over occupied Europe. Many of them were there simply for a few months, while they dealt with a local issue, cutting down trees, laying train lines. Some of them lasted for a number of years, so generally speaking, you wouldn't have heard of them, although this one was in existence for a couple of years. Now, once he gets there, Menachem meets Avram Luntsman, with whom he strikes up a friendship that lasts for 50 years, and he asks Luntsman if he knows someone non-Jewish and trustworthy in the camp and is introduced to one of the Polish workers by the name of Joseph Wenzhenovsky, a farmer who'd been drafted by the Nazis to work in the factory. He asks Wenzhenovsky to get hold of his benefactor in Warsaw who had bailed him out of jail. And from then on, Wenzhenovsky travels to Warsaw once a month for the next year and a half, and he is paid to do this. But by August 1944, the Eastern Front had moved into Poland, and the Nazis now decide to close the camp down. So 2,700 Jews are transported by train to Auschwitz, the storehouses are emptied, and there are 300 Jews left behind to dismantle the camp but they know that they will soon share the fate of those who've already been shipped out they're increasingly desperate they're trying to save their lives and meanwhile joseph Vengerovsky had been sent back to his farm in poland but had told Manachem he would shelter him if he made it to his farm but how and then an unusual occurrence takes place. Menachem Mendel's father, who by this point is no longer alive, appears to him in a dream, dressed in the clothing of the Ukrainian horseman who patrolled the camp. And his father asks him, Mendel, why aren't you going? The fifth gate to the camp is wide open. And he wakes up in a sweat, remembering the dream in detail. In fact, it's so vivid that he never even, even questions what to do next. Uh, what choices did he really have? He tells four others of his plans and they agree to join him. However, the gate in question was outside of the vicinity of the barracks and they would need some sort of plan to get closer to it. That morning, an SS officer comes to the barracks looking for 20 to 30 metal workers to disassemble part of the factory's machinery and bring it to the train siding. So the five jump at the opportunity because they will be closer to the perimeter of the camp and they dismantle and transport the machinery and then they manage to saw through the window bars of the factory building. They slip through the opening and uh, look for shelter hoping that the SS officer who had conscripted them would leave the camp with the train. And they stay in hiding until after dark, at which point they embrace each other. They cry and they say the prayer of Shema Yisrael together. And after cutting a set of double barbed wires, they arrive at this gate number five and find it open as promised and flee. Wow. Yep. And they each go their separate way. And so Menachem begins life as a fugitive. He finally reaches the outskirts of Venjinovsi's house on Tishabav, on the 9th of Av, which is the saddest day in the Jewish calendar, although also the date on which Meshech is born. And ever afterwards, he views it as the anniversary of his rebirth. Now, at first, he is hidden in a granary, although he remains unseen to the outside. However, after a few weeks there, his life almost ends in tragedy. German soldiers enter the farm demanding hay for their horses, and one of them grabs a ladder that was set at a distance from the granary and starts climbing up. Now, Vendrinovsky, who didn't understand German, didn't know what the germans wanted but he sees a soldier climbing up towards the hay and he's certain that they've come for his hidden drew and he knows that the nazis are going to kill him and his entire family for his crime so he gets his family together in a frenzy and escapes to the forest from his vantage point in the granary menachem hears everything and before the soldiers reach the hay He digs himself in as deeply as he's able to and says the words from the Talmud over and over again, Elokot de Meir Aneni, God of Meir, Romer Balanes, answer me, which his father had taught him many years previously. Now this German takes forkfuls of hay and even actually touched him. But miraculously, he remains undiscovered.
0: So the family sheltering him have fled. What happens now?
1: Well, he doesn't have a lot of options. He stays in the granary without food and water with the Venjanovsi family in the forest. And they don't know what has happened. And they can't let anyone in on their secrets. So they can't inquire from their neighbors either. But they come back after a couple of days and decide they need to keep Menachem out of the way. So they dig a pit, almost a grave. And that way, if the Germans find him, they can claim they didn't know anything about it.
0: Just want to interrupt you for a second. There was a point I was a bit confused on. If they were dismantling Auschwitz, but that wasn't No, they at were the
1: dismantling Pionki, the Labor Oh, that camp. was Pionki,
0: right. Okay.
1: Now, they decide to dig this pit, but Venzhenovsky doesn't let Menachem in on his plans. However, on the night of the... 24th of Kislev, night before Hanukkah, which is November 10th, 1944, Rebbe Cheskel of Ostrovca, who was the Rebbe of this family, appears to Menachem in a dream and instructs him to leave the granary above the pigs because the place is unfit for prayer. So when the farmer comes to move Menachem, he tells the farmer about the dream And being a religious Catholic, this farmer is dumbfounded. The move, however, means that Menachem now is going to lie in a grave with no access to fresh air or his own food. Which means if something happens to the farmer, he wouldn't be able to make his own way out and he could be signing his own death sentence. But the Rebbe has said to leave the barn. He describes his incarceration as follows. I stayed in the pit for weeks, of which each moment felt like an eternity, and the loneliness lengthened days into months. My position in that grave caused me indescribable suffering. I desperately craved fresh air. There was only one crack between the slats, a narrow opening, through which the farmer would pass my bit of food and water. The most plentiful commodity there was time. I used it for praying from memory and for reciting different chapters of Tehillim, such as Psalm 130, 88, 23 and 143, as well as Adon Olam. And I sang Shabbos songs that I remembered from my father's inspiring Shabbos table. A pristine white tablecloth and flickering Shabbos candles were a constant image. And it was as if I saw my father sitting at the head of a table, set with Shabas delicacies, which my mother had prepared. Warmth and hope engulfed me in love, as I observed this family portrait. The Shabas songs elevated me high above the valley of tears in which I resided, so much so that I would be engrossed in my songs, repeating them again and again. One evening, I heard Joseph Venginovsi muttering to himself, that Manek has already lost his senses meanwhile Menachem's benefactor joined the Polish uprising became one of its leaders actually but unfortunately he wasn't careful enough and was shot one day as he approached his own home and killed now the farmer hears about the shooting and realises that it's probable that his earnings from hiding Menachem might Come to an end. So he orders Menachem to leave the pit, but he refuses. The Rebbe had given clear instructions that he should remain and go nowhere. So he tells the farmer he's not going to leave, and if Venjanovsi wanted, he could take a life and kill Menachem while he was asleep. And this isn't the only time that the Rebbe's instructions are followed to the letter, all of which would save his life. There was a big dog that hung around not far from the grave that Menachem was in, which would start barking every so often, probably having sensed somebody's presence. Now, this is really dangerous because the barking can be heard in the neighborhood and someone is going to start investigating at some stage. And then Menachem dreams that he is at home on his mother's bed, and he sees himself taking a stick and hitting the dog until it dies. He wakes up, and early the following morning, before sunrise, the farmer brings Menachem a bottle of water and tells him that the dog has been found dead, to which Menachem replies, of course, I killed it.
0: It's incredible. How how long did he stay in this pit?
1: So Menachem Mendel Ostrovetsky didn't leave this grave, from the moment he entered it on the morning of November 11th, 1944, for two months. And then one day in mid-January forty-five, the farmer comes to the grave and says to him, the nightmare is over, you're free to leave. But he couldn't get out, he couldn't walk anymore. And the thinking was that they would have to amputate his legs. So the farmer pulls him out of the pit and takes him into the house and tells him, that his benefactor in Warsaw has been shot by the Germans, but that he had told him time and time again that young Ostrovetsky must stay alive. And the farmer says, I saved your life. To which Menachem replies, you're a Christian believer, and therefore you should know that the one who saved my life is the master of the universe. But he reassures him that he is intensely grateful to him for... Risking his life, and as soon as he's able, a few years later, he actually sends him a large sum of money for endangering his whole family to save Menachem from certain death.
0: Well, and so now the war's over. Well, where does Menachem go?
1: So, the war leaves him with deep scars, not surprisingly. And initially, he makes his way back to loft hoping to be reunited with a any surviving member of his family. But he realises eventually that he is the only one. And so ultimately he leaves Poland and makes his way to England. And he describes his experiences. Now the war and especially the Holocaust brought out the best and the worst in people. It's a cliché but it's nonetheless a very true description. There's greed, betrayal, hatred and friendship loyalty honesty and dilemmas were faced across Europe whenever a farmer would hear a knock at the door if a Jew was standing there many either closed the door or betrayed those who were there some offered a bowl of soup a slice of bread and then there were the few who risked their lives and dilemmas sometimes also meant questioning listening to an inner voice or to logic but there were other dilemmas. How do you rebuild after the war? What legacy do you pass on? And Menachem Mendel, or Max Ostro, as he was known after the war, maintained a strong faith in God. And as his granddaughter wrote to me this week, in many ways, he was very joyful because of it. He would often start singing nigunim wherever he was, regardless of the people around him, and regardless of the fact that he wasn't the world's greatest singer. <laughs> Yet he remained a fugitive in certain ways, moving country repeatedly because he didn't feel safe to settle in any one place. But he didn't dwell on his past in the sense that he wasn't stuck in his grief. And he often said, I don't live in graveyards. And in fact, his granddaughter added, he didn't talk about the war all that much, but he never forgot his parents and he would speak about them and his rabbis very often.
0: Physically, did he heal? Was he able to walk?
1: Yes, yes, absolutely. I will leave the final words about his story to Max himself, which he said at the presentation of a sefer terror to his son Maurice's shawl. Standing before me is the Rebbe of of Strovta, my holy Rebbe, who had stood before me thousands of times during my life. I picture my birthplace, Shidlovta, in its grandeur before the war, and I see it in its destruction. I watch the train hurtling towards Treblinka with me inside, and I envision my father lighting a candle before that final afternoon prayer in the train. I behold the pit in which I hid like a hunted animal. I observe all those and more passing before me. And again, I look around and absorb the sight of Jews dancing, dancing with joy and gladness. There are young ones and old ones, their eyes shining from excitement, and there are tears. Jews dancing with the terror my eyes light up as I comprehend the magnitude and intensity of this event in which I am now taking part and I repeat again and again Am Yisrael Chai with God's help we have won the battle.
0: Wow it's an incredible story when was he nifta when did he die? A few years ago he passed away. Did you ever get the chance to meet him? At once. And he lived in London? Yes. Yes. Wow, thank you, Rabbi Hirsch. That was the last in the series of the Holocaust Dilemmas. Next week, we're going to start a new series, and this one will be on individual stories in Prague's 18th century.
1: Yes, the series will cover the books, the priest, the expulsion, and the tolerance edict.
0: Well, we're looking very forward. Nothing on the golem, I see.
1: Uh, That's a little bit earlier if... It existed at all. (laughs) But uh, what I would say is if anybody has feedback or questions or suggestions, indeed, please do email us.
0: Yeah, and that email address is podcasts at jle.org.uk. We'd love to hear from you. By the way, interestingly, one of our listeners, he's a former American currently living in Israel, he contacted us to say that the story of the bastin in auschwitz with the capo last week right it happened because of his great grandfather who was the hasidic rabbi saved by the capo oh wow so that was uh yeah so any other stories that ring a bell or involve family members we would love to hear from you thank you rabbi hirsch and we'll see you next week